1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keen. On the show today, a look at the German economy. Germany is often considered an economic role model for the rest of the world with low unemployment, a strong welfare state, first class manufacturing, and government budget surpluses. But there's another side to the German economy, and that includes low social mobility and deteriorating infrastructure. And so on a recent trip to Berlin, Matt Klein talked about all of this with economist Marcel Fröcher of the German Institute for Economics Research. Here's the chat.
0: Marcel Fröcher, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So what we want to talk about today is Germany's economic performance and providing some additional context to a pretty common narrative that we hear that Germany is really the the poster child of of how to do government and economics properly compared to either Europe or compared to the United States. You've written several books that cast some doubt on on these narratives. I think we can start with just the idea of how has the growth in Germany been distributed over time, say, since reunification?
2: Yeah, there are two two important points really. And the, first of all, the perception about Germany is Germany's is Europe's economic superstar. At least that's how we feel in Germany. Um, you might say that's not difficult if you look at Italy, uh, an economy that has shrunk by six percent since uh, the first quarter of 2008 over the last ten years. If you look at many other countries in Southern Europe. But the first point really is when you look at today's economic numbers in Germany, where you see the economy is growing, you really need to look at it in the long term. And there the picture looks entirely different. Since the beginning of monetary union, since ninety nine, you can different, take different points in time too. Over the last, let's say, 20 years, the German economy has grown about 2 to 3% less than the French economy and about 10% less than the Spanish economy. And when I tell people these numbers, they're usually shocked and say, oh, that cannot be. Spain had these deep crises and France is getting everything wrong and they're not doing well economic-wise. I tell them, look, uh, people like to forget that Germany was a sick man of Europe only 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, other countries looked at Germany and said, oh, they did everything wrong. They have high unemployment, 12% unemployment in 2005, fiscal deficits, low productivity growth. And so my point here is, Germany is doing well because it's mostly a catching up of a lost decade Germany had in the 2000s. That's the first point. Now, if you look at the distribution, who has benefited from the the recent recovery? And if you take a longer-term perspective, really surprising or to many surprising feature is that Germany has one of the highest levels of inequality if you look at market income, if you look at particular, if you look at private wealth, but also if you look at social mobility in terms of educational opportunities. And that doesn't sit well with, you know, the thinking of us Germans about ourselves, but also about other Europeans and and globally, the US, the perception that they have of Germany. And so one really has to take a closer look. And if you do that, you find a lot of surprising features, such as that inequality is really one key feature of Germany and uh, the inequality is widening.
0: Speaking of the widening, one of the things that people say that Germany did after its lost decade that has resulted in the catch-up that you described is a series of reforms and changes in the labor market in the early 2000s called either Agenda 2010 or hartz fear, and the idea that this is the reason why Germany has done better. What, what is your view on that?
2: Those tough reforms about 12, 13 years ago, uh, they were certainly helpful for the economic recovery. No question about it. Um, It kind of cut benefits, social security benefits, to those losing jobs or or having low income, so really increasing the incentives to work. But it would be really short-sighted to say that was really the only key feature or that was the reason. I think actually it played only a relatively minor role. Um, One is simply catching up that Germany experienced in recent years. The second is that Germany has benefited Massively uh, from uh, emerging market growth because Germany is a very open economy. It has a very high share of exports relative to the economic size. About 50% is the export-to-GDP ratio. So about every second job in Germany depends directly, ind- directly on exports. And exports have been doing fabulously well. Uh, so Germany has this dual economy. Uh, on the one hand, very competitive export sectors that have been doing extremely well. On the other hand, mostly services sectors and non-tradables that have had very low investment, very low productivity, and very low wages. So, yes, those labour market reforms 10, 15 years ago were important to help Bring unemployment down, but they haven't managed to increase productivity. Um, They have uh, not solved the problem that Germany has an unusually large atypical employment problem. So about 20 percent in Germany are atypically employed, meaning either very low wages, temporary jobs, or part-time, or a combination of those. Uh, Compare that to France. There you have about 10% in that kind of type of employment. You see that Germany really has a big issue here. And so, yes, the the Agenda 2010 reforms were helpful, but they have by far not solved the main challenges.
0: So putting some context on those numbers, it's pretty striking to compare the number of Germans with any kind of job, versus the number of total hours worked and tracking that over time. I was looking at this a few months back and the number of hours worked is, is higher now than it was in the mid-1990s, but by relatively little, whereas the number of people who have a job is at a record high. And I guess that ties in what you're saying in the rise of, of part-time employment. The poverty rate has also increased, surprisingly, during this time, even as GDP has done relatively well. What, what is your sense of kind of the causes of that?
2: Part-time Employment in Germany has risen a lot because if you look at the the labor market miracle that Germany experienced over the last 10 years, it really has three explanations. One is female labor force participation has increased very sharply. Second, huge immigration. And third, a much higher employment among older people. And particularly older people and women tend to work part-time, to a much higher share than you find in in most other countries. Uh, That has to do with the German education system, a very poor educational infrastructure. It has to do with taxation, which penalizes usually the the partner in marriages who earns less. So that is one of the big reasons why employment has increased. But the total volume of of work, uh, the hours worked, have not increased. Uh, because you have a lot more part-time. And that's not all voluntary. That's also what one should not forget. A lot of people say they would like to work more, they have to work more. Now, how does that tie in with with poverty? Um, so in a way, it seems a contradiction. So a lot more people are working. In a lot of families, you have actually two people working at the same time, and at the same time, poverty rates increasing. And today, in Germany, we have about 17% of all citizens living or being affected by poverty. Uh, Poverty being defined as a family income that's 60% or less of the median household income. Why has it risen? It has risen partly because wages at the bottom have fallen in real terms. Those 40% in Germany with the lowest wages today experienced a decline in real wages over the last 20 years. So the wage gap has opened up a lot uh, wages have not risen overall very strongly, but they have also developed very unequally. So people with high skills, with high wages, have done very well over the last 20 years. But if you're in the bottom 40%, with low wages, actually you've seen a decline in real wages. And then the second one is that Germany has a strong social welfare state, but it's very biased towards certain families, uh, in particular Married couples with children, for instance. Now, if you look at other groups, single parents, for instance, you have a poverty rate that is around about 50%. So every second parent with children lives below the poverty line because they don't get the tax incentives, tax advantages that married couples have. Um, you don't have a decent uh, education infrastructure, where you have full-day coverage in uh, in kindergarten or in primary school. You have high barriers, in particular for women in the labor market. Germany has one of the highest gender pay gaps uh, in the Western world. So women are strongly discriminated, much more strongly than in many other countries. So put all of these factors together and you understand that for certain groups in German society, it's very difficult to make ends meet.
0: So these changes that have occurred, obviously there are trends that we see in other countries as well, whether it's the United States or the UK, of of a divergence in in wage patterns. But there was a belief, I think, that Germany was different. It's interesting that that it hasn't been different, at least in, in this respect. To what extent, in, in your view, is this due to sort of particular factors that Germany experienced, such as reunification and, and, this, and the emergence of sort of the Central and Eastern European countries as a source of relatively uh, low cost labor uh, on their borders versus policy choices that were made by the German government over time?
2: I would say the main driver really are policy choices. Reunification doesn't explain that divergent pattern. Yes, there is a big difference between East and West Germany, no question about it. So you have about 78%, 79% is the income level in the East compared to West Germany. But East Germany has actually been catching up in terms of per capita income, at least for the first 20 years after reunification. This has stalled in recent years, so there's no longer a further convergence, but that's not the explanation why inequality has increased. We find in Germany uh, an increasing South-North divide. So Southern Germany is doing incredibly well. That's where you have these typical mid-sized companies that are the backbone of the German economy, family-run, very agile, very mobile, very innovative, mid-sized companies, often hidden champions in global markets. That's kind of Bavaria, Baden-Württemberg, the Southern states in Germany doing incredibly well. Uh, But then you you see that the North is doing much less well. uh, And probably the biggest problem state of North Westphalia, Germany's most populous state with almost 20 million inhabitants. This is the old industrial West, where you had coal mining, you had um, iron production, Um, so these type of old industries, and they have not really managed to make that transition very well. So it's not really reunification that explains it. It is also not really uh, European integration, uh, in particular the competition from the east, because that would mean that a lot of jobs uh, were lost going east. But uh, in terms of uh, European integration, in terms of globalization, Germany is really much more of a winner from that development than Let's say the United States, where you actually have seen quite a number of industrial jobs being lost uh, to other countries. In Germany, we don't have that. So really the problem of the low-wage, precarious type of jobs, these are mostly in non-tradable sectors and services sectors. Now, if you look at the reasons for that, it has a number of reasons. One is over-regulation. So a very strong protection for certain free professions like lawyers. Now, I don't want to say lawyers are poorly paid, but, uh, you know, people working in that sector, if you look at pharmacies, if you look at many other services sectors, they're highly regulated. Uh, You have low investment. You have a lot of the low-paid employment in those sectors. So it's not globalization, it's not European integration that has cost, that it's not reunification, but it's really policy choices to have a highly protected services sectors, not enough competition, not enough investment. The second explanation that's equally important is the fundamental transformation of labor market institutions in Germany. So a lot of people think, oh, Germany is highly unionized, very strong labor unions, Uh, That used to be the case maybe 30, 40 years ago, but nowadays only every second job is covered by collective bargaining agreements. And those in the low-paid sectors, services sectors, here you have very few jobs that are actually covered by uh, collective bargaining agreements, meaning you have a lot of jobs around the minimum wage. Germany introduced the minimum wage in 2015 at €8.50. That's about... At the current exchange would maybe around about ten US dollars, and yeah, a very large number, almost ten percent of all German employees were below that level before the the minimum wage was introduced. Now you would think, with the minimum wage, we economists say, oh, this costs a lot of uh, employment. Now unemployment is going up because companies cannot further employ people at a so, so much higher uh, wage. But the fact is, the minimum wage. Basically, had no impact, no negative impact on employment. Uh, may have in individual cases, of course, but you don't really see that in the numbers at all.
0: Low investment has been a theme, I guess, of the German economy for quite some, maybe fifteen, fifteen or so years, both on the business side and, and also in the, on the government sector side. Before we get to the, the public sector side, which I guess is a slightly a more recent phenomenon, what is, what is your sense of what drove the the drop in, in business and private sector investment, basically after two thousand? Hmm.
2: Germany has indeed very low private investment, and that's a puzzle to some. There are two important factors to mention. One is the fact that there's relatively few private investment in Germany doesn't mean that German companies are not investing a lot. But if you look at the export sectors, industrial sectors, they're investing a lot, but they're investing primarily outside of Germany and less and less within Germany. Now, from the perspective of individual companies, that may not be a problem, they're just diversifying globally. But if you look at the perspective of German society uh, and the German economy, that is a problem because a lot of good jobs are moving abroad and ultimately the risk or the, the worry that, you know, this trend continues and more more good jobs will uh, leave Germany. Now, the second important point to look at is what are the conditions for investment for companies? And if... Uh, you look at the business conditions, they're actually not that good in Germany. I've been heading an expert committee, an independent expert committee, on investment for the German government over the last four years. And we basically have found a number of impediments to private investment. You have often very high regulatory barriers. If you need a permission to, to build a new factory or do something, you need, a, you need to spend a lot of money and time to get that permission. There is also regulatory uncertainty, for instance, concerning Germany's energy transition. Um, So Germany has committed to moving to renewable energy, so there is a quite high tax surcharge on energy. Now, companies that have a high energy intensity or produce with high energy intensity, they're exempted from the tax, but... For the time being, do they know whether they still have that exemption in 3 or 5 or 10 or 20 years' time? So that's a concrete example of regulatory uncertainty where a number of sectors, a number of companies have said, this is too uncertain, that is too risky for us. We are rather moving to the U.S. where energy costs are unusually low. You have other problems in the German labor market in increasing skill shortage. I mentioned Germany has a very low unemployment rate, but equally Germany has a very high number of open jobs. Companies cannot find engineers, programmers, other technical experts. Uh, the German economy, although already for the last 10 years, has relied very much on immigration to fill those gaps. Immigration from other European countries. Germany, like the UK, is one of the huge beneficiaries from intra-European migration, getting a lot of young, very well-qualified Europeans coming to Germany and work here. but. They can only fill part of that gap. And the labor market shortage because of the demographics in Germany is increasingly becoming a problem for Germany. Uh, Taxation is not particularly attractive for German companies. Uh, You have a deterioration in the public transport infrastructure. You have one of the worst digital infrastructures in Germany in all of Europe, what a lot of people don't realize. So these are a lot of factors Infrastructure problems, labor market shortages, high regulatory burdens or regulatory uncertainty, and put all of that together, uh, that's a pretty tremendous impediment for many companies uh, and explains why so many are unwilling to invest in
0: Germany. So the infrastructure point is particularly interesting because it really cuts against the stereotype that I think exists, at least in the United States, about the nature of Germany with sort of gleaming autobahns and trains that are that are wonderful. And certainly, at least compared to what's actually in the United States, German infrastructures might very well be better. I, I don't know. But, but what you've written about extensively is that actually it may have once been like that, but that it hasn't been this way for a long time. And you're saying, for example, the quality of Internet in large parts of Germany is quite poor. Can you give us more of a sense of why that's happened and, and, and how it could be fixed?
2: There are a number of reasons why the conditions, why the public infrastructure and public investment has been relatively weak.
0: Part of it has to do
2: with the federal structure of Germany. So Germany has a very strong federalist structure, maybe not that dissimilar to the to one you have in the US, but very different from what you have in the UK or France, where you have a very centralized system. It means that more than half of all public investment in Germany is conducted by municipalities. Now, you have a huge heterogeneity across municipalities, with about 30% of them being over-indebted. They ran up debt in the 70s, 80s. They spent too much on, admittedly, not always very useful investment projects or for social spending, and are over-indebted nowadays, have no flexibility uh, to spend or to even maintain uh, roads or, or, or schools or any other public infrastructure that they have to maintain or that's their, their responsibility. Uh, and again, you have a massive south north divide. So, in the south, you have big surpluses in the municipalities, they're investing a lot. In the north, you have sometimes a third or a quarter of that per capita in terms of public investment. Second big reason has to do with the German debt break. Uh, so, German government decided about 10 years ago, a bit more than 10 years ago, to introduce a debt break, which basically means states and municipalities can no longer have deficits. They need to have at least a balanced budget every year or a surplus. For the federal government, it's a tiny structural deficit of 0.35%, so a small deficit. Compare that to the European debt rules, which allow you to have 3% deficit a year. You see that big gap. So a hugely ambitious debt break in Germany. Uh, This, by the way, ignores completely investment. It just says you have to balance your books no matter how you do it. And the way a lot of municipalities, a lot of the states and also the federal government have been doing it is by cutting investment. And that's the natural thing, right? I mean, if you get into recession, what do you cut first? You cannot cut social spending and Germany has a very strong social welfare state. So those expenditures go up. So you have to cut on investment. Now you would think in good times, uh, you turn around and say, now we have to compensate and increase public investment. But that doesn't happen either. And that's a very good example. If you look at the federal German government in the last few years, then the feeling was, oh, now we are doing well. Now we deserve a good increase in social spending. So you increase pensions, you increase all other social security uh, benefits. Uh, And again, uh, public investment uh, gets the lowest priority.
0: Yeah, it's really remarkable that having that there's so many municipalities that are forced to cut spending like this because of course at the when you take the general government balance and adding up municipal, state and, and federal budget, there's a huge surplus right now. And there's been a reasonably large size surplus for almost ten years. And so it's 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 sort of remarkable that there's nevertheless because of these the structure of how the spending occurs. How, where does the other 50% come from? 50% comes from municipalities. How, where does the rest of the infrastructure spending come from?
2: The other half, of course, comes from the states. Also, here you have a huge difference between rich states such as Bavaria, Baden-Württemberg, or Hesse, uh, and the northern and the eastern states that tend to have deficits. Uh, and of course, a federal government. Um, now, the federal government in recent years has offered to help financially. And it has done a bit. It has provided 7 billion euros extra for uh, weak or over-indebted municipalities. That's not bad, but it's about uh, 0.4% of GDP. Not every year, but, you know, that's once and for all. So we're talking about relatively small numbers. Now, there is really this difficulty that, uh, if you look at the general German government, you have... Big fiscal surplus, but it's so unevenly distributed that the money doesn't end up where it's really needed. Uh, and, of course, we economists like to talk about incentives, and lawyers like that even more. So one of the big reasons is if you talk to the financially rich states in the south, they say, no, no way we are going to pay for the guys in Berlin or in the northern Germany for you know, spending all that money on, on uh, being lazy and, and not on the right thing. So there is this issue that federalism means you have very independent states or very autonomous states uh, that don't want to share. But ultimately it doesn't solve the problem that you have increasing also regional inequalities in Germany and that makes it very difficult to really develop equally and it causes a huge migration flow within Germany. It causes a lot of problems also in terms of income inequality for individuals. So all of that is linked and uh, that problem Germany hasn't solved yet.
0: Do you have any sense of whether there could be, as as regional inequality has increased, that there could be a sort of trend towards federalism within Germany to sort of offset that? I mean, even for the, the debate you described sounds a lot like the debate that Germany has with other countries in the Euro area. But putting that aside, just looking at the states within Germany, do you see any kind of shift there on the horizon?
2: No, not really. Um, that's the depressing thing. So the Outgoing German government has done a deal with the states and the municipalities last year on how to reform the financing systems between states and between the federal government and basically didn't change anything. So the the agreement is the federal government is giving a bit more money, but ultimately it doesn't really change anything. And that's kind of the depressing outcome that will haunt Germany for the next 20, 30 years if it doesn't change course. It doesn't solve the problem for the over-indebted municipalities. And there is no willingness really for radical solutions either. Um, What I find intriguing is, because you made the parallel to, to Europe... Look, in Europe, we are talking about Greece, and every, it's clear to everyone that Greece needs the haircut, right? That is too high. It's not sustainable. You can't have that kind of level of debt, and you need to, to lighten the load for Greece so that it can, you know, after it exits the third rescue program now in August, uh, that it can continue and that it attracts investment, that private investors are coming in. And no one has asked whether we shouldn't have a haircut uh, and debt forgiveness for German municipalities, because it's the same issue. They're over-indebted, they don't have the autonomy, they don't have the ability to actually spend wisely, invest in the infrastructure, invest in schools and and, uh, and, and other things to improve the economic lot. And and that's I kind of find it intriguing that uh, we're talking about Greece and a haircut for Greece, but, but not within Germany.
0: Who holds most of that municipal debt? Is it like local banks, or, or who are the main investors there who would have to take the loss?
2: It basically has a, an implicit state or federal guarantee. Um, so it's mostly held by, by domestic banks, uh, by the local savings banks that play a very important role. There is a fair bit of financial repression, but uh, it seems to serve everyone. So uh, Germany's banking sector is also because of... Uh, that very close relationship between politics and the local savings banks is not the most efficient one, uh, not the most profitable one, but um, so long as this is rolled over continuously, which it is, it doesn't pose a major problem.
0: Well, put it another way, what would you know, if, if there were going to be a significant write-down in these debts to free up municipalities to make new investments, what, what would be the rough size of, that, of those debts that you'd want to see restructured?
2: Oh, that's a good question. I can't give you an exact figure. Uh, The the debt of the municipalities, of course, is not nearly as high as, as, let's say, the federal debt. Uh, That is much, much higher. But it has accumulated. And the problem for municipalities is not only the level of debt. So, as I said, it's not that gigantic. But the problem is that they don't really have many sources of revenues. So they basically rely on two taxes on the, the local uh, tax on companies that want to locate there and things like the local tax on, on, on housing, so real estate charge on the value of the house, which is, is tiny because the values are, are, are not, uh, not accurate. But, so it's very difficult for, for the municipalities to generate revenues uh, and therefore even the relatively what looks like a modeled level of debt for them is very hard to save.
0: You mentioned that the tax on housing is an understated, and I think this is a good chance to get into the, the wealth inequality within Germany. And part of that, part of that is definitely due to housing in the sense that the homeownership rate in Germany is quite low. And arguably, that wasn't really an issue for a long time because conditions for renters were pretty good. But sort of the past 10 years, it's, that's changed. Can you kind of give us more detail on that and how that evolved?
2: One of the striking features about Germany is that Germany has the highest level of wealth inequality in all of the euro area. Yes, you have higher wealth inequality in the UK and the US, but Germany really has an unusually large degree of inequality on wealth. What is even more striking, even compared to the US and the UK, is that you have about 40% of German households that have no net wealth whatsoever. So that's even larger than what you have in the US. And then you can ask, so where does it come from? One is to describe it. Uh, it has to do with very low home ownership in Germany. Only forty-five percent of citizens actually have home ownership, compared to seventy, eighty, eighty-five percent in countries like UK or some of the southern European countries. If they don't hold, hold housing, what do they do with the wealth? So one point is that Germans are terrible. Terribly poor savers have very low equity ownership, with actually declining trend, about 7-8% to of uh, citizens only holding equities. So they like to hold their their savings in a a saving account or in a life insurance, uh, which basically yields a negative interest rate currently. On top of it, German banks have been being spectacularly bad in investing German savings abroad uh, in American subprime, in uh, real estate in Spain or Ireland. In uh, the 1990s, already in the big M and A wave, where German companies, German banks bought to completely inflated prices American startup uh, and high tech companies. So German banks, German uh, investors have been quite poor over the last 25 years investing those savings abroad. It also has to do with the tax system. So in Germany, income on labor is taxed relatively strongly. Uh, Income on wealth or wealth itself is hardly taxed. So tax revenues from wealth, from different types of wealth taxes in the UK or the US is close to 4% of GDP. In Germany, it's one quarter of that has a number of reasons. Um, as I said, property is basically not really taxed. The basis for taxing home ownership is uh, in East Germany based on calculations from 1935, in West Germany from 1963. So clearly from, based on numbers that are completely unrealistic.
0: They've never bothered to update those.
2: Oh, there are good reasons not to update them because then you would actually have to calculate the true value and then you get in a whole, you know, then taxes of course would go up. You have... Equally, on a big issue in Germany is inheritance tax. You have that tax, it's about, at the, at the maximum, you have a kind of a, a free amount what you can inherit up to a certain amount, then it goes up to 25%. The fact is that Germans inherit every year around about 400 billion euros. That's about 13, 14% of GDP that passes across generations every year. Tax revenues from that is about 1%, so 4 to 5 billion. Because inheritance in terms of of firms, of family-run firms, are usually entirely exempt from that. So the rules are if you inherit the company from someone, your parents, grandparents, whoever, and you keep running that company for seven years without reducing the employment or the the wage bill uh, you're basically after seven years you're off the hook entirely kind of, you pay zero and in fact that's you know people inheriting more than ten million pay less than one percent inheritance tax, those inheriting maybe four five hundred thousand, so maybe a small flat or, or or something they usually pay an average more than ten percent inheritance tax, so they have this tax system that is very favors. Uh, people who have wealth, it really penalizes people who have labor. That contributes to to an increasing inequality, both in wealth of, and, of course, and also in income. And it's a big factor in Germany.
0: It's interesting because there's a there's also a perception, and it's borne out in the aggregate data. But obviously, in the when you disaggregate the data, it looks different. But the aggregate data show that German households are very aggressive savers. And even if they invest badly in mostly you know negative yielding instruments, they they save supposedly you know double digit percentages of their income and yet you have a situation where 40% of Germans have no savings uh, whatsoever. So how does that, or no assets, I should say, do you have a sense of sort of how the inequality, income inequality and savings rate plays out, and who's actually doing the bulk of of that saving?
2: Clearly, um, people with good income in Germany are able to save a lot, and they save a lot. So in in some sense, the the saving rate is very much a reflection of of, uh, income inequality and wealth inequality on top. The difficulty, of course, is that you have a high correlation between income and wealth. People with high income tend to be people with high wealth. That leads me to the third type of inequality, which is low social mobility. So in Germany, your ability to get a good education and a good income depends much more on two factors, namely income of your parents and education level of your parents than in almost every other country in the world in the western world I should say so that dependence in Germany is almost as strong or even stronger than what you have in the US About the US it's not surprising we all know you know if you're born in a wealthy, well-educated family, your your chances are much better. You have a private education system, you have excellent schools that cost money in the US. In Germany, it's mostly public schools, so free education is for free. So it's even more surprising that you have the same low degree of social mobility in Germany as you have in the United States. And part of it has to do with the education system that gives the parents a lot of importance in a big role. Uh, you don't have full-day schools, or very few. Usually much of the ed- education is done at home. Uh, you don't have a very good early childhood education system in Germany. Still, that's improving, but it's still, it's a mentality issue, um, which is like changing very slowly. They reinforce each other and basically explain also why, why some groups in society are able to build up savings and wealth. And So the, the worry is that over time, that gap will become larger.
0: Speaking of education and mobility and, and its rising importance, I have, I have a quote here, which I, I think is based on your writing, which is that Germany is one of the few countries in the Western world where the share of young men completing a university degree is actually going down. Can you give us more kind of context on that and what, what both the numbers and also what's driving it?
2: In Germany, we have a relatively low enrollment in, in, in university compared to most other Western countries. Um, If you talk to most Germans, they're very proud of that. and They say, oh, not everyone needs to go to university. We are very proud of our dual education system. So the dual education system means we actually have three different layers of high school. And you decide very early on, or rather the teachers decide for you, which of the tracks you take. And if you take a lower track, you usually finish school at the age of 15 or 16, and then you go into a vocational training, which means you decide what kind of job you want to do. If you become, want to become, let's say, a mechanic, uh, you employed by... a company that trains you as a mechanic. You have on top of it two days a week, you have a specific school that trains you on technical details, and then you become a mechanic. Then you have, by the age of 19, a finished degree, and usually the the company keeps employing you, and you have have a long-term perspective. So the good thing of that is that it's very practical, that it trains young people very well, and youth unemployment in Germany is unusually low. So it's hardly higher than the overall average. So that's a success. Now, my worry about that is more in the long run, right? So we know that people who specialize very early on uh, find it much harder to retrain, or especially when they become unemployed, to, to do something new.
0: There is some good news in the German economy, though I don't want to make it sound like we're just being negative the entire time. There's been, uh, in the past few weeks, news of wage negotiations with big unions like IG Metall and others. And while union coverage has fallen by about half, as you mentioned, they've negotiated several... Relatively impressive wage increases, and also the potential for working significantly fewer hours than they have in the past. What is your sense of this? And you know, is this sort of the beginning of a real trend? What should we make of this? As people looking at sort of the German wage outlook.
2: I'm sorry that I sound too negative on Germany. I didn't want to sound too critical. I it's mean, my question. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I mean, I mentioned the success stories that Germany has very low unemployment, and, and that's, of course, important. My, now, if you look at the recent weeks and the wage negotiations, one should not misinterpret that. Uh, the IG Metall, these are, uh, th- these are industrial jobs that are paid incredibly well. These are among the best-paid industrial jobs. They have quite a significant increase in, in, in wages now uh, and also allow workers to reduce working time temporarily. I don't see this translate into uh, equally strong uh, wage increases for, across the board for other sectors. The second point is where one shouldn't overestimate it is that what's very interesting is that uh, labor unions or, or labor contracts in the, in the past few years have always been backward looking on inflation. And inflation has been, like most other European and Western countries, been very low. But it's picking up now in Germany. And so the real wage increases are actually not that impressive. Uh, We are expecting somewhere between 1.5%, run about a 1.5% real wage increases this year and maybe also next year. So this is not bad. But if you take into account that during the 2000s, real wage increases actually have been negative on balance on average, Uh, we see that Germany is still in a catching-up period. So, yes, real wages are increasing, uh, but not very much. Germany, there's some concern about overheating, the economy doing well, wages increasing, the labour market basically being so, you know, unemployment being so low... I'm quite relaxed about that. I don't see really an overheating for the German economy. Uh, For one, because wage increases are absolutely in line with the long-term trend, with long-term productivity. Uh, Second, uh, because migration continues to be very strong. Third, because we know inflation is not just driven by domestic factors, but global factors are becoming increasingly important to determine inflation also in Germany. So I think Germany will have another three to four golden economic years ahead of it uh, with increasing employment, increasing wages, uh, strong exports, uh, strong increase in, in, in income for the great majority of citizens.
0: There's also a case to be made, and I'm not saying you should make it, but there is a case to be made that some overheating within Germany would actually be beneficial within the context of Germany's position as part of a larger monetary union insofar as as you're mentioning, in the, basically the period up until 2007-2008, Germany had an unusually weak wage growth, and Germany had an unusually weak investment and ended up, as a result, being a drag on overall euro-area growth that was offset by robust growth in places such as Spain. In the period since then, when Spain has undergone sort of a small depression, it's recovered recently, but it still, in general, has had a significant contraction, one would think there would be an opportunity for a certain symmetry there Within Germany, it looks like that we still have a ways to go before that's even on the table. There, there could be a case, a positive case, for actually saying a little bit of overheating would be desirable from sort of a euro area wide perspective.
2: I, I would say overheating is never good because the problems you you get with with an overheating economy over the medium to long term are all, always outweigh the, the, benefit, the benefits, the short term benefits. Now, I wouldn't agree that Germany has been a drag on on the euro area. Yes, I know a number of people have argued Germany should have increased spending more, in particular on the fiscal side in recent years. I'm a little bit skeptical on that for a number of reasons. First of all, Germany's economy is booming because of exports from Asia in particular. Uh, So in that kind of situation, on top of it, to have a fiscal stimulus is just not good economic policy. Second, one also shouldn't forget that even from, from a very strong expansion in Germany, the spillover to other euro-area economies, it's not zero, but it's relatively modest. So it would not be a game-changer, let's say, uh, for Italy, if now in Germany you had 0.5 percentage points more growth. Um, the third thing that I often find a bit troubling with the argument of in in other European countries is the idea, oh because Germany has low wages, uh, we the other countries cannot compete with Germany, and that's why it's a beggar thy neighbor policy. And uh, Christine Lagarde, when she was French finance minister, talked about the wage dumping that uh, is being done in Germany. Kind of that, uh, I do not agree with. I don't think this is really an adequate description because it assumes that German companies are competing with French or Italian companies. Yes, there are certain instances, but by and large, German companies are actively globally, they're competing more with American or Chinese or Korean or Japanese companies. Um, So my, my point is Germany should have invested more, it should have had a better economic policy, but mainly for its own sake rather than for the other Europeans. So I always say uh, the big current account surplus, trade surplus that Germany has, current account surplus of more than 8% of GDP, reducing that via higher investment and higher imports would help other European countries, but it would help Germany first and foremost, um, and, and Germany would be the main beneficiary from it. So Germany should do it for its own sake, not for its neighbors'.
0: Right. For all of the German workers who are have nevertheless under the poverty line and those with, with low assets, this would be beneficial for them uh, more than anyone else. It would also happen to have positive benefits for Germany's neighbors. One thing we touched on briefly before we close is, is that you mentioned that the, the rate of taxation on German workers, especially at the low end, is unusually high. Both the actual tax on, on employment and then the implied tax rate as benefits are withdrawn. Do you see that as something that could be changed as part of the coalition or, or these other policies mentioned it being changed as part of the coalition of negotiations?
2: Yes, and one that should be changed. Uh, in Germany, the discussion has been now with the coalition agreement, we have such a big fiscal surplus. How can we spend it? We need to spend the money. Every party had its own uh, interest group and, and uh, clientele they had to, to serve and so there was an agreement now to cut the the income tax kind of it 's an income tax surcharge called the Zuli, which is basically paid by ninety percent as paid for the by the richest one third uh, that will happen after 2021 so that 's a compromise it's very expensive that 's about twenty billion annually if you cut that tax entirely. 0. six point seven percent of GDP now it would be very easy to cut taxes for the poorer half of the society. Uh, either by reducing social security contributions for pensions, uh, for health care, uh, is unusually high for, in Germany. Uh, cutting these uh, social security contributions uh, would also help uh, make workers more attractive for companies to hire, uh, because it would cost, lower the cost for, of, of labor, and would also improve the incentives for work, get more people from part-time into full-time or working more hours, So a wise and a good economic policy would really focus on reducing taxation and social security contributions for the people with with middle and and smaller incomes uh, so that they would really have incentives to work work more, uh, thereby having uh, equally on the demand side but also on the supply side positive effects increasing potential growth and therefore um, having higher long-term growth. Another option would be to cut value out of tax, and something we have proposed at DIW is say, look, if you really want to, everyone to benefit, in particular proportionally to their income, people with low income, you should tax, uh, cut VAT, because that goes straight into their pockets. Politically, of course, that's a non-starter because as a politician, you want to, you know, you want to get people hug you and love you. And if you cut the VAT, no one will thank you because people won't really realize that they have more money in the pocket at the end of the month.
0: That's interesting. I would have thought actually that VAT would be cutting VAT would be very popular, but I guess that's it's not a surcharge you see at the end when you get your bill like a sales tax. So, have, have politicians in general been receptive to these ideas? I guess not VAT, but the other ones that you that you've been mentioning. Do you see there being sort of real momentum for these kind of reforms?
2: No, on taxation, um, I think this is one of the weakest points of the coalition agreement. There's basically just spending increases in the coalition agreement, but no thinking we actually need to also uh, make the tax system more efficient. One of the big problems for people with small and, and medium incomes are is that, that you have marginal tax rates of 80 to 90%. So meaning if you work a bit more, you have a higher labor income, actually some of the public subsidies are removed. And so it's very unattractive for you to push to work more hours or, or get a different job with a better income. Uh, and simplifying the, the tax system, providing better incentives, uh, re- uh, lowering not just the margin, but the overall tax rates for people with a small and medium, size, uh, medium income, um, that should be a main priority. And politically, that's not very popular, apparently. So uh, that would be a sad thing that I don't expect the, the new coalition re- uh, government to, to really tackle that issue.
0: Marcel Frascher, thank you very much for joining us. My
2: pleasure. Thank you for your time.
1: And that's the end of this week's show. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think. You can email us at at ft.com. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find out about us. Thanks to Matt and to Marcel for this week's conversation. We'll see you here next week for another episode of Alpha Chat.